So would you stand with me as we read uh, the word of God? This is Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 36. Hear the word of the Lord. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery." brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, would you speak through Brandon? Um, God, just give him the words as he unpacks Romans 11 for us, Lord, and thankful for his guidance, his leadership, Father, and we thank you for everything and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Seated. <clears throat> Good morning, church. When I was a student in seminary, uh, I was given an assignment to uh, go and find a leader of uh, tradition that was not a Christian tradition and interview them. Uh, so a classmate of mine and I went, we found a local uh, rabbi of a synagogue and we scheduled an appointment with him. He was gracious enough to give us some of his time. And as I went to this synagogue, uh, I went into a, a building that really was not very different from this building. It, it could have been a, a place of worship for any kind of non-denominational church. There was a lobby and a sanctuary. There were classrooms. Uh, and I remember thinking, wow, that I, I feel comfortable here. This feels familiar to me. And his office, uh, the rabbi's office, was very similar to Pastor Ryan's office. Uh, there were a lot less like dead deer heads on the wall, but, uh, but otherwise, you know, books on shelves and, and a desk, and uh, it, it felt familiar as well. And uh, as we began to discuss the life of a rabbi, uh, I began to realize that I felt a kinship with this man. I, I felt that uh, his sense of calling the kinds of things that he struggles with as a leader of people, the kinds of things that he takes joy in as he's in the lives of the people that he leads, I realized that was resonating with me as a young pastor. And it wasn't really until, like one other thing we shared in common was that his scriptures are our scriptures. His scriptures are what we call the Old Testament. And we even had that in common, and, and we were able to talk about that a lot. But where the differences came in was when we got to who is the Messiah. When, whereas I see Jesus Christ as the Messiah, he is still awaiting the coming of the Messiah spoken of in the Older Testament. I left that meeting uh, uh, with a lot of thoughts and a lot of things to process. But my biggest takeaway was, I, I feel like I have far more in common with this man than I have uh, differences. And today we're continuing through uh, the book of Romans and we've arrived at chapter 11. And Cha chapter 11, it will, it will kind of uh, wrap up the first part of the book 
in which Paul lays out a kind of uh, systematic theology. And beginning in chapter 12 next week, we're going to kind of change focus a little bit and, and look at more practical application of our faith. But our text this morning is where uh, it's the last bit of Paul's treatise on God's sovereignty over salvation, and it's focusing in on the dynamics of Jews and Gentiles within the early church. And essentially what this question is asking us is, is a fundamental question. Who exactly are God's chosen people? Uh, for centuries, the Jewish people considered themselves to be God's chosen people. And indeed, they still do. And it's kind of a matter of ethnic pride. Yet when the Jewish Messiah arrived on the scene, the the vast majority of Jewish people did not recognize him. When it became clear that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, the Jewish people rejected him. They persecuted him, and ultimately they crucified him on the cross. And it was in the midst of that mess that Jesus sent his apostles to plant his church. And when Paul became a believer, he was specifically called to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's when the church really began to grow. And throughout history, many Jews had looked down on Gentiles because they were not God's chosen people. But as the church rapidly became kind of a majority Gentile organization, the reverse kind of became the problem. The Gentile Christians had begun looking down on the Jews, even the Christian Jews, for having rejected Christ. And the church in Rome definitely was feeling this tension. And so Paul was seeking to kind of remedy this by providing some clarification on how God felt about the Jews within his church and what the plan for Israel is in the future. Now, this is a good point in Scripture for a preacher to kind of speak plainly about anti-Semitism. I don't really get a sense that we struggle with this particular sin too greatly in our congregation, so I'll just keep this simple. If you think that the events of the crucifixion justify some kind of hatred in your heart for Jewish people, well, you need to repent because that is... There is no basis for that found in Scripture. And the full teaching of Scripture is that we are all, every one of us, responsible for the death of Jesus. There is no difference between Jews or anyone else in the eyes of God. Indeed, Jesus himself was Jewish, as were most of the apostles and early disciples. And if you have a hatred for Jewish people because of politics or Hollywood or whatever's going on in the Middle East or because of racial stereotypes that you learned when you were younger, that's just not okay. And as Christians, we're called to love our neighbors. We're called to love our enemies. We're called to acknowledge that all people, regardless of gender or race, are made in the image and likeness of our shared creator. If you struggle with the sin of racism, this is what I would say to you. Know this. You can overcome it 
through the power of God's word and his Holy Spirit. And if you confess it to him and repent, he will be faithful to forgive you. All right, that being said, let's get into our text and see what God has for us this morning. Our big idea is kind of, uh, well, it is, the fullness of God's mercy is revealed as he fulfills his promises to Israel through his church. We're going to look first at God's relationship with Israel, and then we're going to look at the church's relationship with Israel, and then we're going to see how this all relates to the context of God's sovereignty over salvation. So first, let's look at God's relationship with Israel. And the point I want to make here is that God has not abandoned his chosen people. See, Paul begins by asking the question that was on everyone's mind. And remember, last week, uh, we did Romans 10, and and it ended with a quote uh, from the prophet Isaiah, who had referred to Israel as a disobedient and contrary people. And I think it's easy for us to imagine that there, there may have been some Gentiles in the early church who would be quick to jump on a verse like that to justify their feelings of superiority. And Paul shuts that down pretty easily in Romans 11, 1 and 2. He says, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. See, Paul was a respected leader in the church. He was an apostle And as he deftly points out, he was a Jew with a particular pedigree. No one was more Jewish than Paul. And everyone was familiar with his story also. He was definitely one of the Jews who had rejected Christ as Messiah. And he had approved of the crucifixion. And at the time of his conversion, he had been actively persecuting Christians If God was going to reject anyone on the basis of being Jewish, it would have been Paul. And yet here he was, the most prominent Christian of his day. He moves beyond that anecdotal evidence, though, and he takes us to Scripture and reminds us of the story of the prophet Elijah that we could find in 1 Kings 19. You'll remember that story. Elijah had just had this amazing moment where God showed up in a big way and he had defeated all of the prophets of Baal. He had actually had them all put to death. I think there were like 450 of them. And this did not make the king and queen of Israel very happy. And they began to hunt him down to kill him. And he was running for his life and hiding in a cave where he has a conversation with the Lord in which he says, I'm the only person in Israel who is faithful to you. And God says, hold up, Elijah. I have set aside 7,000 men for myself who are faithful to me. Paul refers to this as a remnant. And if we do a study in scripture, uh, we see that God has always kept for himself a remnant of people who believe. The earliest remnant was probably Noah and his family. The whole whole rest of creation was destroyed and he was spared. But as we look at the story of Israel in the books of Kings and Judges and Chronicles and throughout the 
prophets. We see that time and time again, God's chosen people turn their back on God, but every time there were some who remained faithful, a remnant, even as Israel went into exile, even until the day of Jesus when we find John the Baptist there preparing the way. Romans 11, 5 and 6 says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. So the answer to the question, has God rejected his chosen people? Of course not. God always keeps a remnant of people that he has drawn to himself. Now I want to pause here for just a second and kind of step out of the the Jewish realm and, and kind of see if there's any application here for ourselves. By, by just asking a simple question, are you like Elijah? Are, are you on fire for the Lord, but you feel like, like maybe you're the only one? Are you making this error of thinking that you are the last living true believer? Do you, do you look around the church and, and you see that your brothers and sisters in the kingdom, they're just not living up to your standards? Are you writing off whole groups of people because they, they're not holy enough or they don't serve enough or they're believing the wrong doctrine or they're not singing the right songs? I would say think about Elijah. Elijah was the main spiritual leader of his day. And he was so self-absorbed that he missed 7,000 men, not to mention their wives and children, who had been faithful to God in his midst. You know, I did this with my own father. For many years when I was a younger man, my father was not very spiritual. He didn't go to church he didn't read his Bible very much. And as all of his children were kind of coming to faith and we began to go to church, we would invite him to join us, but he very rarely did. And for years, I judged my father for having a shallow faith. And we moved to Georgia and we were not close. And when he passed away, I went back to California for a few days to prepare for his funeral. And during that time, I met many people who came up to me and told me that they knew my father, that he had been of great encouragement to them, that he had been engaged in a local church community, that he had been leading Bible studies and had even written a book on how to evangelize to Mormons. I had written off his faith, but God had been doing a work in his heart that I had no idea about. And I tell you, I wish that I could go back and be more curious about his faith than certain that he had none. All right, getting back to it, Paul tells us there's always a remnant of Jewish people who believe, and I'm grateful for this because uh, my wife and my daughters and my son-in-law are all of Jewish descent. I rest easy knowing that God has not rejected them, and indeed he appears to have drawn them to himself as elect, and I have great hope for my grandson, who is also of Jewish descent, that he will one day make his parents' faith in Jesus his own. It's exciting to me that they are all a part of God's church, 
And that brings us to our next point, which is the church's relationship with Israel. The church is the fulfillment of God's promises to his chosen people. I think we could define the church as as kind of an interdependency between the Gentiles in the church and the remnant of believers within the Jewish people. And this connection, while it's kind of more prominent in these late days, it's really nothing new. See, God did set apart the people of Israel in the Old Testament, but he never excluded the Gentiles. Let's see what God said at that moment when he called Abraham uh, out of his country. In Genesis 12, 1, it says, "'Go from your country and your kindred "'and your father's house to the land that I will show you, "'and I will make of you a great nation.'" And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And God reiterates this later in Abraham's life, just after he obeyed God's command to to, uh, sacrifice Isaac. He said in Genesis 22, 17, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. These covenantal promises were there from the beginning and they were always kind of mysterious until Jesus began his church and the apostles began to reveal God's plan more fully in the Newer Testament. How are all the families, all the nations blessed by Israel? How could one extremely old couple have so many children that they would be impossible to number, like stars or like sand? Well, Paul gives us the answer in Galatians 3, verse 7 He says, uh, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you all nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. Abraham, the man of faith. Church, this is one of my favorite things about God, that he is immutable. That's a fancy theological word that just means he never changes. He is the rock. We just sang about it. He is a firm foundation. He is a fortress. He is not fickle. He doesn't change his mind. He's not reactionary. He's not impulsive. If he was any of these things, woe on us. We would be doomed for certain. But thankfully, the steadfast love of God never changes. The believers in the Older Testament were saved in the same way that believers today are saved, through faith. There were non-Jews who came to faith in the Old Testament. Just one example is Ruth. She was a Moabitess. 
She was not Jewish. And guess what? She's in the family tree of Jesus. We see that in the book of Matthew. Though God did a special work through the people of Israel, he has always drawn people from other races to himself. The apostle Peter says in Acts 10 verse 34, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. The God that Peter knew is the same God that Abraham knew, and he shows no partiality. In the days of the Older Testament, God's chosen people were often used to demonstrate who he was to other nations. And these days, Paul says, the magnitude of the Gentile salvation is intended to make Israel jealous. Are you seeing this, church? God is always using the one to include the other. This is the meaning of those two analogies that Paul gives us in verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So this analogy about the dough, this comes from Numbers 15. Moses gave a law to Israel that said that when they made dough out of the grain that they get in the, in the promised land, they were to set aside the first portion of it as a contribution to the Lord. It was like a tithe. And it says that by giving the first fruits of their grain to God, it was as if God was counting the entire crop of grain as being set apart. So that when they later made bread for their own use, that was holy as well. I stopped this week when I was reading this and I was just thinking about like, what does this mean like in my own life when I, when I give a tenth of what I have to the church? It is, it, God is receiving it as if I had given him all of it. That's an amazing thing. Paul's using this concept as a way to illustrate how Israel is blessing the church. The, the first fruits of bread and the root of that olive tree, they represent the forefathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And the whole lump of bread and all the branches on the olive tree, they represent the descendants of Jacob, the Israelites. But as Paul explains, the Gentiles are not excluded because they are represented by the wild shoots that are being grafted into the root. Paul calls this a mystery. By that, he means it's something that is mysterious in the Older Testament, but is revealed to us in the New. And so he's helping us to understand it better. In Romans eleven twenty five, 25, he says, lest you be wise in your own sight, what he means is don't go getting crazy ideas. He says, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I preached part of Romans 8. And you may remember that we looked at how God works all things for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Well, here we are three chapters later, and Paul is still talking about this. What we're talking about is the sovereignty of God. 
See, it was necessary for the Jewish people to reject Jesus in order for the Gentiles to be grafted in. And in turn, God is using the faith of the Gentiles to make the Jewish people jealous so they will turn in faith to Jesus. And although God allows that which is evil, he will always use it for the good of those he calls to himself. So there's this partial hardening that's come upon Israel. And what that means is that right now, most, Jew- most Jewish people are not open to the gospel. Even as they read their scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, they do not see how it all points to Jesus. They're like Paul described in Romans 1, people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And this is the truth, that God's promise to Abraham that he would be saved by faith was accomplished by the work of Jesus Christ. You see, our sin separates us from God. He's perfectly holy and we're sinful. And because of that, we can't be together And because of our sin, we deserve death and we deserve eternal punishment. But here's the good news. Jesus came and lived a perfectly sinless life. He knew no sin and he died a sinner's death, punished for our sins on a cross. And three days later, Jesus rose again to life, conquering death. Because of his sacrifice, Our sin was paid for on the cross, and we in turn receive the righteousness of Christ so that we can be together with God. Scripture tells us that if we believe this, we will be saved. The believers of the Older Testament, they believed in this coming Messiah. They looked forward to Jesus. And today, those of us who believe, we look backwards to Jesus. But all of us are saved by the same faith in the same Jesus Christ. And this is the truth that many Jewish people today suppress. Though everything they need to know is contained in the Old Testament that they claim as their holy scripture. So let's talk about this hardening for just a moment because I don't want us to make the mistake that God has somehow deprived Jewish people of their free will. Whenever we encounter a situation in Scripture where we're told that God has hardened a heart, we see that this action by God is in response to actions or attitudes that are already being demonstrated in a person's life. When God hardens a heart, it's an act of judgment that only solidifies what is already there. It was once explained to me like this, like everyone's heart, its natural state is being hard. And God has his hands on everyone through his common grace where he makes us not as hard-hearted as we could be. But sometimes for his own purposes, he'll lift his hand and let the natural hardening of a heart occur. God never makes a person who would otherwise do the right thing sin by hardening their heart. That's not how it works. Take note also that Paul is careful to qualify his statement with the word partial. What it means, the partial hardening, this means that not all Jewish people have hardened hearts. 
Only those who have not been called by God have been hardened. Thus, my lovely wife, for example, is able to love and follow Jesus. And Paul uses himself as an example as well. Paul tells us how long this hardening is going to last. It will last until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. The fullness of the Gentiles refers to that moment when the very last Gentile person that God has predestined for belief becomes a Christian. At that time, we will see the second coming of Jesus Christ. And Paul also tells us the result of God's plan for the Jewish people. All Israel will be saved. Just as the fullness of the Gentiles does not mean every single Gentile, but only the elect Gentiles, all Israel does not mean every single Jewish person, but only the elect Jewish people. So this amazing mystery, it's not that Jews continue to be saved if they're elect. There's nothing amazing about that. That's the way that it has always been. Nor is there really any reason for us to see in these verses that there's going to be some kind of end times revival of the nation of Israel. God could do that, and we should pray that he does. We should pray that for Israel and every nation. But it's not suggesting that here in Romans 11. The mystery that Paul is marveling at is God's beautiful plan to use the faith of Gentiles to move Jewish people to faith in Jesus. That is really marvelous indeed. Now, there's some people who teach from Romans 11 that the church has replaced Israel as God's chosen people. And they even go so far as to imply that the Older Testament prophecies about Israel should be understood as referring to the church. I don't think that Romans 11 is a text that gives that to us clearly. Others teach that Romans 11 says that on the very last day, all the Jews who are alive at that time will be saved. I don't think the text is saying that either. I believe the plain teaching of Romans 11 is this. The true church, what theologians would call the invisible church, is made up of two distinct but equal groups of people, the elect Jews and the elect Gentiles. And the church will continue to grow in this fashion until it reaches its fullness, at which time Jesus will return and we will all live together as one family of God for all eternity. We Gentiles, we should rejoice at our full inclusion in the church. And those of us with Jewish heritage should rejoice that God is faithful to keep his covenant promises to his chosen people. So how does all of this relate to uh, God's sovereignty over salvation? God's Uh, God is sovereign over election, and thus we cannot lose our salvation. In in the middle of Paul's analogy about the olive tree, right, we find this warning uh, in Romans 11, uh, 19 through 22. Right in the middle of all of that, it says, like, if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. This is a warning to the Gentiles. Do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think. God is not choosing between, uh, he's not choosing favorites between Jews and Gentiles. Paul is making the point that God shows severity 
to those who have unbelief and kindness to those who have faith, regardless of their ethnic heritage. But there can be confusion here because this analogy of the olive tree, you know, every analogy kind of breaks down if you poke at it too much. It, it kind of seems like he's saying, well, we can be grafted in and that means we're saved. But then at some point, if we discontinue in his kindness, I'm not sure what that means, but then we could be cut off and lose our salvation. But we have to examine these verses in light of the rest of Scripture. And you'll recall from when we looked at Romans 8, uh, verses 37 through 39. Remember, remember this? this is the, we're continuing this same discussion. Paul said that nothing, not angels or rulers or life or death or powers or height or depth or anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Paul has already firmly established that those whom he calls, he will glorify. And there's nothing that can change that. Any branches are, that are cut off are only cut off because of unbelief. The natural branches, the Jewish people, they had this great advantage of being born into a heritage of faith. And the wild shoots, the Gentiles, we were grafted in without that advantage. But any branch that doesn't bear the fruit of the evidence of belief, whether it's natural or whether it's grafted in, will be pruned away. But those branches that have belief, they will produce fruit. It's only branches that never truly believed in the first place that will be cut off. Paul's saying in a nutshell, don't assume that you're definitely in just because you're a Gentile. Just like the Jews should not assume they're definitely in just because they're a part of God's chosen race. There's only one way to salvation, through faith in Jesus Christ. So why, is, why the warning, right? What, if he's not warning us that we might lose our salvation, what's the message? Well, we have to keep in mind, Paul is addressing whole groups, the Jewish people, all Israel, and the Gentile churches, the fullness of the Gentiles. He's asking them to consider the kindness and the severity of God. The Jewish people as a whole are experiencing the severity of God right now. As they continue to not believe in Jesus, this severity will continue. Those of them who do believe will experience his kindness. The Gentile churches as a whole should heed this warning. We have no reason to expect special treatment simply because we're not Jewish. It, as we reject God's word and promote works-based righteousness instead of faith in Jesus Christ, we should expect to experience the severity of God as well. And have we not seen that? Have we not seen the hardening of hearts within so many churches these days as they are rejecting God's word and embracing false gospels. God's purpose to the Jewish people was to establish a faith into which he could graft every nation. And God's purpose for the Gentile churches is to spread the gospel to every nation, even to the Jewish people themselves. 
To those who are called according to this purpose, he will show kindness. And to those who are not, they will experience a hardening, a response to their unbelief. Paul sums it all up with this statement in verse 32. For God has consigned us all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. When he says all here, he's speaking of all kinds of people. There's neither Jew nor Greek. God will show mercy on all of Israel. God will show mercy on the fullness of the Gentiles. God does not have to choose between one or the other, and neither do we. This is extraordinarily good news. As Paul wrote to the church in in Ephesus while describing the beauty of Jews and Gentiles worshiping together, we use this as our call to worship this morning. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off, that's the Gentiles, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, Christians, in place of the two, Jews and Gentiles, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul thus concludes this first part of Romans. It's a theological look at how God is bringing salvation to his chosen people by pointing out how God has not only reconciled humankind to himself, but also all nations one to another. Church, if we know Jewish people, even Jewish people who are actively practicing their Jewish faith, It's my deep hope you'll never make the mistake of thinking that they've missed their chance because God has moved on to the Gentiles. Our Jewish friends are not beyond the reach of the gospel. Indeed, there's reason for great hope that they'll be so envious of our relationship with Jesus that they will come to love him as well. And this is a model of reconciliation that we can use as a guide for people from any nation or any other kind of faith as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the heritage of the Jewish people that you called to yourself through Abraham, creating a great nation and a a book of scriptures that we rely upon so heavily as we consider our faith in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes and ears of of all people to see Jesus Christ in the truth of the Old Testament. Lord, give us a boldness to share our lives with our Jewish friends. And Lord, help us to remember that you are faithful and sure and that we can rely on you to keep your promises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. 
If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.